Hello and welcome to Truth Be Known, stories about how modern data leaders seek truth in an uncertain world. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Kelly Haride, Director of Catastrophe Research and Development at Liberty Mutual Insurance and the Corporate Enterprise Risk Management Group. Prior to Liberty Mutual, Kelly was a research scientist at Chubb in their primary side natural catastrophe unit. She has a PhD in geological sciences from the University of Texas, Austin, focusing on climate science. On this episode, Kelly talks about using historical data to create catastrophe models, taking a strategic standpoint to invest in resiliency and reducing vulnerability to changing hazards. Truth Be Known is brought to you by Talent. A leader in data integration and data integrity, Talent enables every company to find clarity amidst the chaos. Talent Data Fabric brings together in a single platform all the necessary capabilities that ensure enterprise data is complete, clean, compliant, and readily available to everyone who needs it throughout the organization. Learn more at talend.com. That's T-A-L-E-N-D.com. And now, please enjoy this conversation between Dr. Kelly Haride, Director of Catastrophe Research and Development in the Corporate Enterprise Risk Management Group at Liberty Mutual Insurance, and your host, Rob Norman. Welcome to Truth Be Known. I'm Rob, and today I'm joined by Kelly Haride. Kelly, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, obviously, now you are Director Catastrophe Research and Development at Liberty Mutual Insurance. But uh, in the not-too-distant past, you were Senior Research Scientist at Chubb, and you had an interesting journey that started out in, in academia. So I'd like to start by understanding a bit about how you ended up being Director of Catastrophe R&D. And when you first started out, was, was that always the plan? <laughs> I think it's fair to say that There aren't that many people who go into insurance on purpose, and even fewer of them go into catastrophe risk in climate science on purpose. So I got here accidentally. (laughs) Okay. That's what everybody wants to be when they grow up. You know, firefighter, astronaut, insurance. (laughs) But, you know, it turns out it's actually a really, it's a pretty exciting place to be. So I came here. Yes, absolutely. Really, I came here totally by accident. Um, There's... There was no game plan going into this from the start. But really what I found has worked out best for me in my career is basically just saying yes to whatever series of interesting tangents came up along the way. So I actually started out as a biologist. I was convinced since I was little that I was going to go study bugs or plants or birds. But then my freshman year of college, I got randomly dumped into a gravel quarry in an intro geology class. And then it's been rocks basically ever since. It turns out that actually the part of rocks that I enjoy the most is the big arm wavy parts that tie rocks to the atmospheres and the oceans. And that's how I ended up being a climate scientist. Fascinating. Fascinating. I think that's such a great philosophy because it's one thing having a predetermined plan to become a certain profession. And of course that exists and that's great. But uh, yeah, just when you have those opportunities presented saying yes, always leads us down interesting paths and it, and it certainly has for you. So let's continue with uh, catastrophe modeling and, and understanding more about what that is. Can you describe it and really the purpose it serves? Yeah, so a catastrophe model is like a big, giant database of everything that could go wrong in the world. So hurricanes, floods, fires, earthquakes. We haven't done meteors yet. I'm still holding out for meteors. (laughs) 
basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the possibilities of what could happen in terms of large disasters. So as a climate scientist, this is a really interesting and thorny problem to work on because many of the disasters that we work with every day in the insurance industry are changing as a result of climate change. And that's essentially what my job is to understand, how to take this big ferment of scientific research and translate it into something actionable for the business. And, and I should imagine there is a ton of data that's required in order to model those catastrophes that are so uh, vital for the insurance uh, industry. What is the data that informs that model? Where does it come from? Tell me more about how that catastrophe modeling relies on, on so much data. So there are actually four main parts to a catastrophe model, and every one of them relies on basically massive amounts of data input. So the part that I work with most directly in my day-to-day -day job is that big database of everything that can go wrong in the world. So these are essentially tables of tens or hundreds of thousands of years of hypothetical events. They are derived from historical information. So, you know, using historical weather observations, records of hundreds or thousands of years of earthquakes, just a variety of, you know, any sort of historical disaster that we can learn something from. We try to ingest information about that. And then we essentially perturb those historical events to produce distributions that we can use to interpret things that maybe haven't happened yet. Then we throw those against another giant database of our entire book of business. So we might have millions of locations of policies that correspond to our customers. And each one of those policies has information about it. So you know, maybe this one is a single family home. It's two stories tall. It's made out of wood. So we have exposure databases that capture the characteristics of millions and millions of individual locations. Those two pieces are fed together into an engineering model. So again, we're, there's a science component, but there's also a really important engineering component that says, based on our history of claims, based on engineering experiments, Say, if you had a hurricane with 100-mile-an-hour winds, what would be the proportion of damage that you would expect from that type of disaster at that type of location in the building that you are looking at for your policy? And then all of that gets fed into a financial model that captures terms like, you know, deductibles and limits the, the normal parts of insurance policies. So every one of those is sort of a big, juicy data problem, and they all have to flow together. So each one of them individually could be a complex model in itself, but they all have to feed together. And so you have to be comfortable working with large data sets, but also know where that data can be sort of cut down to make it into a useful piece of information to feed to the next model down the line. And how do you start to, to make that happen so that you're essentially relying on those specific data sets that you can use to model those outcomes? Yeah, so these tools are made by a couple of external companies. They're partners that we work with, companies like AAR Worldwide and RMS are sort of the two dominant players in this area. And each one of these companies has teams of a huge amount of PhDs whose job is nothing but to go and produce these giant historically based disaster data sets. So each one of these models can take months or years to develop, but then my team takes them and says, okay, 
this is what we take as a starting point, but we need to interpret it in the context of our business and we need to interpret it in light of changes that might happen in the future. So for example, um, some of these models very directly and explicitly incorporate climate risk today. So if we were to model the storm surge for a hurricane, that storm surge is modeled using current sea levels. So that is a way of actually explicitly incorporating climate change. But because those models are designed to operate one year at a time, they're meant to, to model a one-year insurance policy, if we wanted to see how storm surge might change out in 2050, then we have to use forward-looking projections of sea level rise and add it to the component of the storm surge model that sits within a catastrophe model. So it's a complex mix of using the tools that are available, but then ingesting external data sources from government research, from academia. I mean, we, we're really data omnivores around here. I mean, I've gotten event response data sets that are individuals going and capturing from aerial imagery where homes have been lost in a wildfire and they're building shapefiles by hand in a community on Twitter. I mean, we don't pick and choose. We're happy to take data in any format that we can get it. Is that almost the, the adage of uh, the more data, the better? Yes, but we're always happy to take in more information, right? More information is usually going to be better than less. That being said, I operate heavily in the climate space right now. And for those who, who work in this area can vouch that there has just been an explosion of climate data analytics that has happened in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of venture capital money that has come into this space. There is a huge need in the financial sector to try and capture this type of risk which means there's a lot of information that's available, but you also have to be able to sift through what's there and interpret it appropriately to make sure that you're not just ending up with perhaps nonsense. Just because the data is available does not necessarily mean that it's data that you can use. So this is where you have to bring your scientist hat to the table. Um, if I have someone who's trying to say, that they have a model that will tell me down to the cent what your hurricane losses will be in 2050, I would want to have some questions about that <laughs> because I know that the scientific confidence in changes in hurricane frequency is comparatively low. We operate in a field that includes a lot of data, but also includes a lot of uncertainty. So we need to be really comfortable operating in a space of uncertain and developing science. You mentioned that you're working with some third parties. Is the majority then of the of the actual catastrophe model externalizing and, and all of the data is being centralized as it comes in within the third parties and you're accessing that data? Or is it something that you're you have internally at, at Liberty Mutual or maybe a blend of both? It's a little bit above. So there are certain areas where for regulatory reasons or because the resources are more available in sort of these external third-party tools, that we leverage those tools because that is what we believe is the best available data. And then we adjust them to reflect our current view of risk. You know, the complexities of our own book of business, areas where we think there were pieces missing in that initial model. So it's external, but then adjusted. Then there are other areas where we don't think those external tools are necessarily the best solution. So for example, 
my team, together with some of our business units, just created a proprietary wildfire hazard map using a variety of publicly available data sources because we didn't weren't satisfied with what was already available for that particular business problem, which is the problem of underwriting and understanding wildfire risk at an individual building location level. Yeah, and I should imagine that's an area in terms of wildfire that you're, as a natural catastrophe, is becoming more and more prevalent. There are other catastrophes that are becoming more and more prevalent with climate change, but I should imagine, particularly in in North America, in the US, on the West Coast, as an example, that's that's an area where you're, I should imagine, you're spending quite a bit of your time. It has been a significant part of my team's time for the last several years, and part of this is that you can't just look at a hazard in a vacuum. So we know that wildfires are increasing in area due to climate change, and that's mainly driven by increases in temperature. That has fairly recently emerged in the scientific literature, and there's good physical mechanisms to say that that's happening. The problem is area burn doesn't necessarily say what a real loss potential can look like. Because if you look at the massive wildfires that have happened in the last couple of years, particularly in California, but then again, Colorado just had its largest wildfire or most destructive wildfire in, in history just this past winter, or just this winter, I should say. What's really driving losses is not the size of the fire. Rather, it's the speed of the fire. They all have different names depending on where you are. A Santa Santa Ana wind, a Diablo wind, a Chinook wind. They're all the same process. And you can essentially think of wildfire as a race between when a fire starts and starts to spread versus when firefighters and defensive resources can get in front of that fire to slow it down. So in these very fast wind-driven events, That's when the fire can move so quickly that it can actually get into buildings and people's homes and people's businesses before firefighting resources can safely get in there, establish a perimeter, and stop the fire. So climate change complicates this a little bit because it means that your preconditions are worse, right? It's hotter, it's drier in the seasons leading up to this wildfire season. But it's not just the hazard, it's the built environment too. People are building out into more dangerous areas. We call it the wildland urban interface. So you have more people, places, stuff at risk, and that's compounding this increase in hazard. So you're increasing your disaster potential in both directions. And it's a really complex problem and it's a thorny one to solve from the insurance standpoint. Yeah, and it was interesting, something I just wanted to pick up on something you you mentioned earlier, which is you were talking about modeling this down to the actual building. And that's really at the crux of it when you're talking about the degree to which there is encroachment on these more at-risk areas by development, which is impacting the risk levels. Yeah, absolutely. It's a thorny issue and You know, it's intersecting with really a complex housing market, particularly in places like California. As homes get more expensive in California, people have to move further and further out to be in areas that they can afford. And further and further out means further up into the mountains, out into more remote areas where wildfires have traditionally happened, but where there maybe weren't as many people there before. One of my favorite examples of this is the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa. At the time, the most expensive and destructive California wildfire in history since surpassed 
has almost exactly the same footprint as another fire called the Hanley Fire that happened in the 1960s. Literally, exactly, almost identical. The only difference is nobody knows about the fire in the 60s because at that time, there was no one living in the area. So it's a change in hazard, but some of these are areas that have always burned, but now there are people there who are at risk. And as there seems to be an acceleration of the frequency of those wildfires, of the destructive size of those wildfires, and you were mentioning earlier that the catastrophe modeling is based on those historical data sets and hypothetical forward face for future predictive data sets. How are you and in what way are you needing to adapt the models in sort of, I mean, real time is not, not necessarily the, the right word, but to keep pace with the ever accelerate or it seemed to be ever accelerating frequency of these catastrophes as, and wildfires as an example of that? So we can go at this from kind of two different directions. One of them is that catastrophe models actually allow us to look at historical events in the context of where people live today. So you might run, say, a historical wildfire footprint, but run it with where people are actually living today. So you can be able to see those changes that are driven by exposure, by people moving to different areas. And that's something that a catastrophe model is really good at and is really designed to do. Then on my team, we also do things like stress tests, where we take the model as it stands and we can do what-if experiments because each one of these events in the model has some characteristics of the event, how big it is, severity, spread, but it also has an assumed frequency. So we can say, what would happen if you doubled the frequency of this particular characteristic of event or tripled it? What kind of impact could that potentially have to sort of our overall book of business, our overall loss potential and damage potential from wildfires. So as a tool, we don't just use it sort of at face value. We can use it as a place to run and drive experiments that can allow us to explore future climates when we don't necessarily know what that percent change is going to be. I'm curious to understand more about as you're making those scenarios, those, those different scenarios that you just described and the process that your team uses to then inform decisions around policy. How, how do you go from the, the modeling and the, uh, and the scenarioing to the actual policy that is then publicly available through Mu Liberty Mutual? I think this is a real area that I think is an underutilized or underappreciated part of being a scientist, a data scientist. You can do amazing research and come up with really interesting conclusions. But if you don't have any way to tie it to the needs of your audience, the needs of your end user, it may as well have not have happened. So this role of a climate scientist as a data translator is one that we take really seriously at Liberty, and it's something that we're, we're investing in right now. From my perspective, actually, just been going through a hiring cycle right now, I find that it's actually much easier to find people who are, you know, technically incredibly proficient. And I've talked to a lot of amazing scientists recently who are interested in getting into this area. But what I find is harder is finding people who can sit down and think about, okay, I have a result. How do I take the implications of that result and reach out to the business? How can I think about this from a strategic standpoint? Where should we be 
expanding new business? Where should we be investing in resilience, right? Because there are ways that you can change your risk profile aside from just jumping on and off of business. You know, you don't want to just say, well, this risk has changed, you know, that I'm just going to drop off or jump onto things. It's a, it's a more disruptive way of managing a portfolio. What we want to do is be proactive partners in risk management. So the Marshall Fire is a really great example of this and one that, that I was incredibly struck by. So like I said, Marshall Fire was the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. It just happened a couple of months ago. And it happened at a time of year where there were roughly 100 mile an hour wind gusts, which is a bad situation to be in in a wildfire situation. There is a bit of a climate component to that as well, because normally at that time of year, it was at the end of December, you would have snow on the ground in Colorado and there wasn't any snow on the ground. So there's a climate angle that we need to think about too. But there was an amazing story that emerged from one of the communities that was impacted. And it was two side-by-side neighborhoods, one that was older and was built under older building codes and one that had actually just been built with updated fire-resistant building codes. The older neighborhood lost every single building burned to the ground. It's totally gone. Like I said, this was an enormously destructive fire and really impacted these communities. The other neighborhood was so close, it was literally across the street. There were pieces of melted plastic from the burnt neighbors found attached to the side of the newer homes, literally stuck to the side. Any non-fire-resistant home would have burned to the ground because those embers are what causes wildfire spread and wildfire destruction. In that neighborhood with those updated building codes, not one single home was lost. We can modify risk by saying, oh, well, we, you know, we don't want to be involved in this area. But where the real opportunity is, where insurance needs to be thinking proactively in the face of a climate change that we know is coming, how can we reduce that risk through investing in resiliency and reducing our vulnerability to changing hazards? And that's where there are a ton of opportunities in wildfire. And that was a story that I was just amazingly struck by. That's fascinating. I, yeah, I wasn't aware the degree to which this is effectively using preventative measures to reduce the risk versus assessing the risk and being ready to accept a certain level of risk or being prepared for that risk to occur. Right. You know, we can't prevent hazards from happening, but we do have the opportunity as a society to prevent more disasters because disaster is an intersection between hazard and a community. If that community is well defended and well prepared, it greatly reduces the likelihood of that hazard turning into a disaster. So that means investing in things like building codes, it means investing in critical infrastructure. Some of this stuff has to happen at the community level. It means investing in community-scale defenses, things like levees or green spaces for stormwater absorption. There's a ton that we can do, but we have to know that these are things that can happen. And then as a cat modeler, incorporating that information into models that get better and better and learn how to manage this changing risk over time. Yeah, and, and and I'd love to just kind of paint the full picture in terms of what you talked about earlier is in, in the way in which you're partnering um, to take the 
uh, outputs from the model and then make those recommendations. So those folks that you're partnering with, clearly there's Liberty Mutual Insurance itself. You've just described partnering with government and state. Are there additional partners that you work with? Yeah, we also have what's known as a risk engineering and a risk control function where we reach out to sort of our large commercial and industrial clients and we send people out to go and take a look at their facilities and say, hey, by the way, here are the things that you're doing well. Here are ways that you could improve the defenses on your facilities so that we get real concrete on the ground advice on how to improve your risk potential and minimize and mitigate that risk at the front end. And then we try to offer that advice to our personal lines business as well, right? There's a lot that you can do to your own home, some of it not even really costing that much, that can help to really reduce your risk. So for example, with wildfire, an easy and low or no cost way to reduce your wildfire risk if you're in a susceptible area is to create what's called defensible space around your home. That means not going and planting bushes around the foundation of your home, but rather leaving an area that does not have any flammable materials around it and pushing those sort of away from your home. That's a way that dramatically reduces your loss potential because even if your home is not hugely susceptible to wildfire, if the bush that's sitting right next to your home sets on fire, the odds that you'll have damage are going to be pretty high. So there are simple things that you can do, and we try to communicate those out to our, our clients, our end users, to make sure that that proactive risk reduction can happen with individuals every day. There's a whole side to your work, which is advisory-led and preventative that is really interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about your team. Who is within your team? What is the makeup of the, of the team? What roles are involved in your team? So we actually have a really broad array of expertise in my group. And I think that really speaks to the wide variety of flavors of things that can go wrong in the world. So I have an earthquake engineer, an atmospheric scientist, casualty and cyber risk modeler, because we don't just deal with natural hazards, we also deal with man-made hazards. And then a geospatial analyst who helps us think about how to put all of these risks on a map and derive insights from spatial data. Uh, <laughs> that's a very well unique i guess uh, makeup to a team which has some fascinating job titles they totally beat marketing director or <laughs> and you mentioned something earlier which was interesting which was you know the profile and uh, a makeup of the people in that you're looking to hire and, and bring into your team it's not just about being a scientist it's about being able to interpret and make the recommendations on that data from a business perspective so do each of those members of your team that you just described, are they able to do both? Are they more the, the scientists? And, in, and indeed, you've got others in your team who are helping to, to make that interpretation into, into a business sense. How are you overcoming the challenge that you raised earlier in terms of making those interpretations back to the business in an effective way that can be actioned? So we expect everyone to sort of have a foot in both worlds, right? You need to have that technical subject matter expertise of being able to look at this big complex model and set of tools and external data and everybody's trying to sell you stuff and say, this is what we can do something useful with. Here's where there are problems. And this is the solution that I'm going to come up with. So that's a very technical role. But every single person on my team, when they're doing the work, they're also the ones who are going out and presenting that work out to the business. Because I want to make sure that that is, you know, not only something that that we expect as part of their role, 
But that's an area for career development and future-looking career paths, right? We want to make sure that if you have someone who's, you know, incredibly technically smart, that they have a place to go in the future, that there is a clear outline of what else they can do to contribute to the organization. I see a modeling team as a training ground and as a way station to bring a complex and sophisticated view of risk management to all different parts of the business. It's something that, that everyone on my team does and everyone is, is good at and an active area of professional development that I work on with everyone in my group. And, and so for those that might be aspiring to move into this uh, field, is the path in through the technical expertise and then developing the ability to translate the findings into business recommendations? Or for example, if you're a data scientist, could, could you come in from that direction? Is there one path to, to this or multiple? There is definitely not one path because I have yet to meet a catastrophe modeler, like I said, who came here on purpose, right? Everybody kind of gets here through a wandering sort of path, which means that you have an opportunity to bring together a group with a really wide array of backgrounds who can all be learning from each other, where, you know, the, the person who knows a lot about earthquakes teaches about earthquakes to the others in the group. The person who knows a lot about climate change teaches a lot about climate change to the others in the group. So having some, some technical expertise is enough to open the door and get the foot in the door. But really that communication piece and demonstrating your ability to think about the needs of your end users is a way to really set yourself apart if this is an area that you want to get into. And that must be really challenging if you're, if you're coming into it from, from academia to then really think in terms of those end users. I, I draw the analogy with where I focus on, which is marketing to B2B companies, whereas to understand the end users, you really need to spend time with them. So is that the same for your team and the, and the people that are coming into your team? It's, it's a path over time that they, they grow and develop. You know, it's funny. I think about this question a lot because obviously hiring somebody with no background and everyone who comes into this field has no background because like I said, everyone finds it accidentally. It can be a real challenge to try and figure out, are you going to be any good at talking to the business? The people who I've found who are able to sort of describe well how they can do that are actually often people who come in with some kind of teaching experience. So we get a lot of people with sort of graduate degrees and some people go all the way through whatever their graduate school is, not having to teach at all. And a lot of grad programs Teaching is kind of thought of as, okay, well, that's kind of your backup option. You know, you'll do it if you can't get any funding to put together, and then you'll just deal with it. But I find people who actually do a lot of teaching, particularly a lot of teaching at sort of introductory level courses, often have a ton of experience thinking about science and data in a way that they can break it down and make it simple for people who have never seen it before, who are from other fields. I mean, I had to go teach about sandstones and limestones to a bunch of, you know, like business people and, you know, English majors and communications people, other people who had no scientific background whatsoever. So that meant that when I came to this field, I had no practice talking to the business, but I had a lot of practice taking complex scientific concepts and breaking them down for people who otherwise would not necessarily have been exposed to them. So those people often are good at communicating when they're put in a new environment to communicate to a new audience. 
Yeah, being able to really simplify what is a, a very complex subject and a complex topic and then telling the story in a way that people can understand. Tough not to crack, but when you figure it out, it opens a lot of doors. <laughs> I want to just um, sort of loop back on the data conversation because um, we talked earlier about how your team and this f- speciality are, are huge consumers of data. Um, and we talked about uh, one aspect of challenges with data. And one of those was actually, do you trust the data and do you believe the data before you're ingesting it into the model? But I was curious to understand what are some of the other specific data challenges related to catastrophe modeling that you and your team deal with? Availability of data is one, the quantity of data we kind of touched on, but what about aspects such as integrity of data or those sorts of areas? Yeah, I mean, data integrity is one that I was working on in a meeting earlier this morning. We have real challenges with the, and I feel like this is true across the entire industry. I, my, my peers who work in other areas have, have communicated very similar issues. With understanding our exposure, meaning our policies, our clients, our book of business, down to a very granular level. Because like we talked about earlier, these models can produce output down to the level of an individual building. It can say, Here is the chance that your building will be impacted by storm surge this year. But if you don't know where the building is, that model isn't going to help you all that much. And what makes this more challenging is that many of the perils that are changing as a result of climate change, so things like wildfire and flood and sea level rise, many of those are incredibly what we would describe as high-resolution perils, meaning One neighbor could flood and the one next door is just fine because there's a little bit of elevation change or something between the two houses. Versus many of our sort of standard models that we've been using for decades, like hurricane and earthquake, that level of granularity is nice to have, but the model will still function if your home is at the right location or if it's a mile down the road. That risk doesn't change that much over that small of an area. So there's a real big data problem that we have to be able to get down to incredibly fine levels of spatial resolution. So this is an area where Liberty is really investing in new technologies to try and get at that thorny problem. We work closely with an aerial imagery group where they use machine learning techniques to say, here is where the building actually sits within its parcel. Here's where the rooftop is. Here are some conditions of the roof that can say, because a roof is often the most important characteristic for modeling things like hurricane. It gives you a lot of details about that from looking at from the top down at a building to try and capture aspects of its characteristics. So this is a real emerging area. And we have huge data science teams that are working on nothing but that. The integrity one is an interesting one. And like I said, it's a big part of our day to day. But I think the biggest one is actually coming from the communication side. Because it's one thing to say you have a lot of information and we can give you know, a curve with thousands of points that describe, again, down to the cent, what your dollar loss is going to be for a particular earthquake. But what they don't tell you, or what is hard to convey, is uncertainty. What pieces of a model you believe well, where things are a little squishy. So you're trying to convey this very complex technical piece of information with some fairly large error bars on it from an output that like I said, literally will produce loss to the cent. 
So it's a data problem, but it's also a data interpretation problem. And again, that's why, I, I mean, I know I keep harping on the communication piece, but that communication and translation is a key role that we see for scientists, data scientists, engineers, analysts of any flavor within our organization. Yeah, it's yeah that that ability to storytell and, and interpret in a way that people can understand is clearly fundamental. You also mentioned that just this morning you were discussing integrity. So that must be one of the questions that you're asking yourself and the team is asking themselves constantly, can I trust this data? You, you mentioned earlier about getting even more precise data, validating the data in, uh, with uh, aerial photos, uh, et cetera, to get even more granular, to get even more precise modeling. But how often are you saying, can I trust this data? Is this data complete? Is this data accurate? I mean, it's part of our everyday job. We put on a very skeptical hat for our information about our book of business, for our information about these hazard models that we use, for our information about our claims history and the, the claims history and engineering data that was used to derive how much damage you can expect. Every piece of using big, complex data sets within an insurance environment should be looked at with a very skeptical hat on. And I feel like that's healthy. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not coming from a place of trust, but we're very much a trust but verify kind of shop. Yeah. And technically validating that data, is that something that you're ultimately relying on data engineering teams or your third parties that you mentioned earlier to ensure that the ingestion and integration of that data is taken care of and, and you know that there's a checkbox there and those aspects are, are addressed? Or is that actually something that you're concerned with and, and, and you address yourself or your team does? That's a critical part of my team's day-to-day -day job. One of our biggest yearly projects is taking in new models, new tools, and evaluating them against what was previously available, other external data sets, scientific literature to say, we believe that this model is treating the hazard appropriately or we need to be doing something different with it. So um, that verification and taking them all apart and breaking it down and putting it back together again, that's our bread and butter part of our job. I would love to chat for hours, but we're drawing to a close. So as, as we do so, where can people follow you? Where can people learn more about your work, what you do at, at Liberty Mutual? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is my name. So I talk about sort of this complex intersection of hazard and climate and public policy and economics in that venue. And we also, you know, we have a lot of information on our Liberty websites. So we have tons of information on how we're thinking about climate risk and ESG risk more broadly publicly available. So please come on by and you'll see some of our workshops that we've run with outside researchers. We did a, a big one with NOAA this past year where we think about exactly this kind of problem. What works well in the current climate risk environment and ecosystem, and where do we have some ways to go? So I highly encourage you to pop by. Fantastic. Kelly, thank you so much. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you joining the show today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the invitation, and thanks so much for your time. Truth Be Known is brought to you by Talent. A leader in data integration and data integrity, Talent enables every company to find clarity amidst the chaos. Talent Data Fabric brings together in a single platform 
all the necessary capabilities that ensure enterprise data is complete, clean, compliant, and readily available to everyone who needs it throughout the organization. Learn more at talend.com. That's T-A-L-E-N-D.com.